0: This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Michelle Zahner of Japanese Breakfast released a memoir today titled Crying in H-Mart. It's about losing her mother to terminal cancer in 2014. That experience was first documented in Japanese Breakfast's first album, Psychopomp. And while we talk about music being healing here on KEXP, for Zahner, making Korean food was her form of therapy following the passing of her mother, and Michelle Zoner joins me now to talk about the memoir, Hello.
1: Hello. That was such a nice thing to hear, actually. KEXP yeah. has such a special place in my heart, and it... It, for some reason, felt very real to hear you talk about the book on <laughs> Well, we are so
0: excited to talk to you. I mean, obviously, we are a huge fan of your music. And as I was talking to a DJ the other day, it's like, we feel like we've heard the story through your music, but to now have it all laid out in words through a book is a totally different lens, you know, to view your story. And so as we dive into this book, let's just start off with have you just reading an excerpt from your memoir sounds good.
1: Food was how my mother expressed her love. No matter how critical or cruel she could seem, constantly pushing me to meet her intractable expectations, I could always feel her affection radiating from the lunches she packed and the meals she prepared for me just the way I liked them. I can hardly speak Korean, but in H Mart, it feels like I'm fluent. I fondle the produce and say the words aloud, chameh mele, tanmuji. I fill my shopping cart with every snack that has glassy packaging decorated with a familiar cartoon. I think about the time mom showed me how to fold the little plastic card that came inside bags of Jolly Pong, how to use it as a spoon to shovel caramel puffed rice into my mouth, and how it inevitably fell down my shirt and spread all over the car. I remember the snacks mom told me she ate when she was a kid, and how I tried to imagine her at my age. I wanted to like all the things she did, to embody her completely. My grief comes in waves and is usually triggered by something arbitrary. I can tell you with a straight face what it was like watching my mom's hair fall out in the bathtub, or about the five weeks I spent sleeping in hospitals. But catch me at H-Mart when some kid runs up double-fisting plastic sleeves of bunk and I'll just lose it. These little rice cake frisbees were my childhood, a happier time when mom was there, and we'd crunch away on the styrofoam-like discs after school, splitting them like packing peanuts that dissolved like sugar on our tongues. I'll cry when I see a Korean grandmother eating seafood noodles in the food court, discarding shrimp heads and mussel shells onto the lid of her daughter's tin rice bowl. Her gray hair frizzy, cheekbones protruding like the tops of two peaches, tattooed eyebrows rusting as the ink fades out. I'll wonder what my mom would have looked like in her 70s if she'd have wound up with the same perm that every Korean grandma gets as though it were a part of our race's evolution. I'll imagine our arms linked her small frame leaning against mine as we take the escalator up to the food court. She would carry the quilted leather Chanel purse that she'd wanted her whole life instead of the fake ones that she bought on the back streets of Itaewon. Her hands and face would be slightly sticky from QVC anti-aging creams. She'd wear some strange high-top sneaker wedges I'd disagree with. She'd pluck the lint off my coat and pick on me, how my shoulders slumped, how I needed new shoes, how I should really start using that argon oil treatment she bought me but we'd be together if I'm being honest there's a lot of anger I'm angry at this old Korean woman I don't know that she gets to live and my mother does not like somehow the stranger's survival is at all related to my loss that someone my mother's age could still have a mother why is she here slurping up spicy jampong noodles and my mom isn't other people must feel this way Life is unfair, and sometimes it helps to irrationally blame someone for it. Sometimes my grief feels as though I've been left alone in a room with no doors. Every time I remember that my mother is dead, it feels like I'm colliding with a wall that won't give. There's no escape, just a hard surface that I keep ramming into over and over, a reminder of the immutable reality that I will never see her again.
0: Michelle, thank you so much. Again, that's an excerpt from your memoir, Crying in H Mart. You know, for those that haven't read the book, how would you just describe who your mom was?
1: My mom was a Korean woman from Seoul who immigrated to the U.S. when I was just a year old, and she was 30. Um, She was an incredibly effervescent, very stylish woman, woman. Who believed in all things self care before they were in vogue? She had a twelve step skincare regimen and was addicted to QVC. But she also had this very enchanting, somewhat withholding stoicism, and it was sort of the combination of those things that that made her so intriguing as a person. I think. Mm-hmm.
0: And in the book, you write that food was how my mother expressed her love. Describe how that played out for you.
1: Yeah, my mother, like a lot of people, expressed her love through food. You know, she would remember, you know, all of my favorite dishes and also all of my friend's favorite dishes. She would remember if someone uh, couldn't handle spice, if they liked more broth in their soup, uh, in their noodle soups, if, if they liked their food really hot, if they... Uh, liked a certain type of side dish. And she would always kind of like pocket this information away and and save it for when they came over to to kind of um, take care of them.
0: Yeah. I think there's also like a, there's a quote in the book where you, where you say, you know, your mom would say to you, like when you would eat food, Korean food specifically, she would say, this is how I know that you're a true Korean.
1: Yeah. I think that a lot of it came from, you know, being mixed race. My mom was Korean and my dad was, you know, white American. And Um, I think that when I enjoyed a Korean dish at a young age, it was a sort of reminder that, like, oh, that kid's mine. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, outside of, like, bonding over food together, I mean, how would you describe your relationship with your mother before her cancer diagnosis?
1: Um, My mom and I had a pretty tumultuous uh, relationship, especially in my adolescence. And I think that, you know, a lot of – I think especially a lot of mothers and daughters have have pretty complicated relationships and and kind of, you know, return to each other in their 20s if they're lucky. And yeah, I mean, I was a young creative. I was very um, independent and it was definitely uh, there were a lot of major points of contention between my mom and I, uh, who was an immigrant parent and sort of struggled to understand my desire to be, you know, a young musician. That was something that she felt she really had to protect me from. And so as an adolescent, we, you know, argued a lot and and we had sort of just started becoming returning to each other in a way uh, in my early 20s when I found out that she was sick.
0: Yeah. And it seems in the book, too, that your relationship shifted after that, the cancer diagnosis. And also, there was some moments in the book where you know before it seemed like your mom could be very critical at times, and that just kind of like just melted away. you know. And so I'm curious from your perspective, how do you feel like your relationship changed after the diagnosis?
1: Um, I think that especially as like an only child, I always knew that there was going to be this major role reversal that would have to happen and I would really have to rise to the occasion. I never knew that it was going to happen so young and so soon. Um, so it was really important to me to be there for her completely. So I moved back to Eugene, Oregon, where I'm from, and I lived with her for six months as a caretaker. And, you know, I I think it was just really important to me to prove my love to her and and my loyalty as a daughter. And um, I think that she really saw that in the end.
0: Yeah. You know, you say in the book, um, you know, how you lost both your aunt and your mother to cancer within five years of each other. And, you know, you go to H Mart in search of memories and you say you're collecting the evidence that the Korean half of your identity didn't die when they did. And there's a few times in the book where you say you felt like your Korean identity was fading away or you felt like it was fading away after your mother's passing. And I'm curious if you still feel that way or by connecting with Korean food the way that you have during the diagnosis process and caring for your mother and then after her passing, do you feel like connecting with Korean food and also writing this book has helped with that process?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, part of being mixed race and losing your parent that sort of connects you to that part of your culture, you know, you just start to question, like, is this even an an inherent part of my identity? Is it just like so intrinsically connected to me? And you know, I think that now I just really feel like I have to work to preserve that part of myself instead of, of of it just being like innately a part of me because of my mom's existence in a way. So, yeah, I think that these are like little rituals I've kind of created to honor that part of myself and, and to preserve it. Hmm. You
0: know, and as you mentioned, you you went back home to U- Eugene. Um. You know, following your mother's diagnosis, and you know you were her caretaker for a while. And you know, again, it was kind of at that point that you started cooking for your mother as a way to care for her. And then, you know, you said after her passing, you tried to go to therapy and just realized, you know, what the therapy for me is going to be making like kimchi and other Korean food like once a month. Um. And you also have this beautiful line in the book about you had thought that fermentation was controlled death. You know, but at the same time, when you're making Making something like kimchi or fermenting food, it's almost creating a new life for it um, in a way in the process. And so what do you think it was about cooking that connected with you?
1: Well, initially I just didn't want to pay a hundred dollar co-pay to go (laughs) see a therapist uh, for half an hour. And just like, it was very difficult for me to get comfortable. And I I tried for uh, a few months to, to make that work for me. And it just, I had this moment where I was like, you know, Wouldn't taking yourself out to, like, a really fancy lunch twice a week be, like, more therapeutic to you than, like, doing this to yourself? Um, And certainly, you know, therapy is great for a lot of people, but that was my sort of mentality at the time. And I discovered this Korean YouTube vlogger named Mangchi who sort of, like, helped me learn how to cook a lot of these Korean dishes. And I just, you know... This was the last concentrated period of time that I spent with my mother since I was a teenager. You know, it had been seven years since I spent like this much time with my mom. And so for a long time, I couldn't remember my mom before she was sick. And that was just a really devastating, heartbreaking realization that like the trauma of living with her as a caretaker had really clouded over all of these really beautiful memories. And then when I was going to H Mart to just make food for myself um, and get groceries, I, you know, I would see a can of like sweet red bean. I'd be like, oh my God, I just remembered um, when my mom and I used to like make pot bingsu with her relatives and we would eat like these, you know, sweet snow cones together during the summer. And I would have this beautiful memory come flooding back to me, or I would see, you know, like, this type of noodle, like jajangmyeon noodles. And remember when we used to travel and eat um, black bean noodles together every time when we first arrived in Seoul. So it was a real key in sort of unlocking, um, you know, these like, sort of excavating these memories that had been buried by this really traumatic experience of watching someone, you know, health deteriorate. And so that was a big part of it. And I also think that just the Nature of food it 's obviously rich with you know sensory detail and uh, is a very um, meditative like therapeutic process you know very tactile and uh, I think that it the combination of those things really really helps me kind of anchor my my grief into something um, palpable
0: that 's beautiful. You know, you wrote Japanese Breakfast's first album, Psychopomp, in your childhood home, in Eugene, when all of this is happening, you know, with your mother. And you had been playing music for years prior, but I'm wondering how your relationship may or may not have changed during the time in which you were writing, you know, your first, you know, album for Japanese Breakfast.
1: Um, I wrote Psycho Pump within a few months after my mother passed away and... You know, I think it was just a way of like communicating how I felt. I felt um, you know, I've always been like such an open book and a very outspoken person, and I was really surprised to find that my grief was very quiet. You know, I, I felt like I couldn't really talk to anyone about what I was going through. And so writing this record really helped me navigate and put into words exactly how I was feeling and what I wanted to tell people and Yeah, I feel like I was able to honor my mom in a way that I went through that record. Yeah, I mean,
0: that record is so much about, you know, the experience that you're laying out in this memoir. And I'm curious, as you reflect back on that first record, Psychopomp, if there's a particular song that really stands out to you that you feel like really highlighted what was going on at the time.
1: Oh, my gosh. I mean, there's actually a song... (laughs) There's a song that actually has a voice recording of my mom, uh, which is wild. And it was really important to me, I guess, to like press her voice onto vinyl to like have it forever, to never, you know. I can always like listen to her voice if I listen to that, though. It, it is very difficult for me, for me to hear. But you know, that song is like an instrumental song that just ends with a voice recording of her, and it's like, you know, maybe the only recording I have of her voice, and uh, it's it's very haunting. In China, in China.
0: Okay, I would have to say, too, I was listening to that record right after I finished reading your entire memoir. Again, it's called Crying in H Mart. And mm. that song came on and, you know, I looked up the lyrics ahead of time and this one just said instrumental. So I was just expecting it to be an instrumental track. And then when I heard your mother's voice, like it gave me the chills, yeah. like knowing the backstory behind everything.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm curious how it felt writing that first album as a way to kind of process grief versus how you felt writing this memoir. Do you feel like it was different in any way in terms of just the process for you?
1: Oh, yeah, it was very different. I mean, Psychopomp was really quick and, you know, it was very raw and was within months of her passing. And so I was just a completely you know, vulnerable, uh, you know, sh- shell of a person really when I wrote that. And then, you know, I've, it's been six years at this point since my mom passed away. And, you know, I, my grief has transformed in so many different ways. And I've, I've been able to like think about it much more clearly. And, um, you know, it's, it's just so much more involved to write a book about the story of what had happened during this time and, 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 and encompasses a larger part of our relationship and our our time together.
0: Mm-hmm. And when I think back to, you know, the comment you had made in the book about feeling like your Korean identity was slipping away, you know, after the passing of your mother, I'm just curious, you know, through you cooking Korean food or through you writing this memoir, if you do feel closer to your mom these days and also to that part of your identity.
1: I do feel closer to my mom these days. I think it's also just a part of growing older. You know, I'm in my 30s and I'm at that point in my life where like everything that I do seems to be reflective of some trait from one of my parents. And so I see a lot of her in myself as I get older, um, which was not really something I was able to see when I was younger because I was like such a rowdy, tempestuous little rugrat. And, um, you know, as I, as I sort of mature into uh, an older adult, I I can find a lot of like um, similarities between my mother that I I really enjoy in a way that I, I don't think I would have when I was younger. Mm hmm. I'm speaking with
0: Michelle Zahner of Japanese Breakfast about her new memoir, Crying in H Mart. And, you know, as you had mentioned, you know, your mom wasn't super supportive of your music career growing up. You know, I think she was really afraid of this idea of being like a starving musician. Yet after she passed and your album Psychopomp came out, you know, Japanese Breakfast started gaining traction. You toured with Mitski, played Bonnaroo and Coachella. And like the tour ended in Seoul, you know, where your mom is from, where you were born. And you write in the book, I'm going to read an excerpt from the book, You write, quote, the years that followed my mother's passing were suspiciously charmed. I had been playing in bands since I was 16, dreamt of succeeding as an artist practically my whole life, and as an American, I felt entitled to it in spite of my mother's aggrieved forewarnings. I had fought for that dream thanklessly for eight long years, and only after she died did things as if magically begin to happen. If there was a God, it seemed my mother must have had her foot on his neck, demanding good things come my way. And I love that that section of the book and I'm just curious I mean what do you think your mom would think of your music career today?
1: Oh my god she would be so proud of me. I mean it's it's truly heartbreaking that my mom was never able to see me succeed on my own terms. It was like such a it seemed like such a fantasy for so long and uh yeah I mean it was such a strange serendipitous thing that the that the you know albums I wrote about her passing were the ones that sort of found me um having artistic success for the first time. But I had such a funny moment because my mom, like many Korean women, like adores Chanel. And it's the sort of like peak of elegance and style. And uh, I did a, a photo shoot for Harper's Bazaar recently. And and they were like, we, we'd love to see you. And they put me in a Chanel suit. And they're like, oh, turn your tattoos towards the camera. We love to see like the juxtaposition of your tattoos and uh, luxury. And I was like, oh, my God, if like only my mom could like see me <laughs> in my chanel in this Chanel suit with like the tattoos she hated um you know featuring my my writing and music and work, and uh, you know I have to believe in some way that you know the spiritual version of her knows or, or something
0: mhm, do you feel like you learned anything new about yourself or just like you know people create stories and narratives in their head about like how life has been or their views on someone and i 'm just curious like what did you feel like you learned about yourself or the story of like you and your mother through writing this memoir?
1: Yeah. I feel like I learned so much, um, in writing this memoir. I think I was able to like, honestly forgive myself for a lot of stuff. Um, you know, I had so much guilt about like how awful of a teen I had been and what my I had put my mother through. But I also feel like I was able to like really forgive myself because a lot of that I think was a creative energy. I didn't know how to channel at that time. And um, it's, you know, after getting to be where I'm at, like it it feels like I just it was it was my calling in a way. And I I felt like I had to just do whatever I could to get there. Um, I also feel like, you know, so much of it is like realizing that, you know, when you're mixed race, like you'll never fully belong to, you know, my, I'll never fully belong to like my Korean culture and I'll never fully belong to American culture. And in a way, I've had to like forge my own sense of belonging by creating um, this artistic space for myself and this sort of like creative world for myself to, to belong in. And and I, I think that that was a major realization for me in this book.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned in the book how you felt like you didn't see enough Asian American musicians as role models growing up, you know, and in the book, you wrote about how you started connecting with fans and kind of the next generation of performers. I'm going to read another excerpt. You wrote you know, this is once, you know, you started gaining momentum as Japanese Breakfast and you write, after the shows, I'd sell shirts and copies of the record, oftentimes to other mixed race kids and Asian Americans who, like me, struggled to find artists who looked like them or kids who had lost their parents who would tell me the songs had helped them in some way and what my story meant to them. And so I'm curious, you know, just when we were looking at, you know, ideas around identity, but also just connecting it back to the music industry. Are you hopeful that there is more representation for the next generation of musicians and fans?
1: Oh, absolutely. I feel like already, I mean, at at least in my community, I, I feel like there's a lot of really exciting Asian American artists, like Mitski and j and Sasami and Luna Lee and Longbeard. I mean, there's like so many um, Asian American women that are, are, are tremendous indie musicians that represent so many different uh, types of sound. So I'm, I'm really excited about uh, my community and, and, and having like such a range of people to, to get to, to listen to.
0: Mm -hmm. And you've got a new album coming out June fourth. It's called Jubilee. And you've said that, you know, after spending the last five years writing about grief that you wanted to follow up with an album about joy. And I'm curious what brings you joy these days and if some of those moments of joy also connect you back to your mom in some way.
1: Um, honestly, this is so basic, but the weather changing to be, to like being <laughs> sunnier uh, has brought me a lot of joy and, and the idea, you know, like some optimism for being released from this pandemic and getting to play live shows again definitely brings me joy. Um, yeah, and I'm just really excited to to bring this book into the world. I mean, I still can't believe I wrote a friggin' book, you know, and uh, I can't wait for people to get to learn about my mother's character and her spirit. And um, yeah, I feel like it really honors her in a way, and I'm I'm, I'm very excited for people to read it. And it's a beautiful
0: book. It's it's two hundred and thirty nine beautifully written pages. <laughs> um, I, I again, I have to say, it was it's so beautifully written and really takes you through the journey. So thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing your story with us. Again, it's a beautiful story. Um, again, I've been speaking with Michelle Zonner of Japanese Breakfast about her new memoir titled "Crying in H Mart." Thank you so much for chatting today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. But I want to move out of your way I want to find what's there in your stomach If it's the same dark and it's too light
0: And that was Japanese breakfast song Heft, written by Michelle honor after her mother passed away. And that was Sun Vision. Before you go, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, or share it with a friend. Also consider making a one-time $20 donation to help support this podcast at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.